Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. NASA CIO Renee Wynn is, as she says herself, not a techie. Her roots started out in economics, and she got into information science while at the EPA, where she spent 25 years. We spoke to Renee about the importance of technology in managing the vast amounts of data at the science agency with its various efforts in going to the moon and even Mars. NASA is a large organization. Put into perspective for us what your role entails. So NASA is a large organization. In fact, we have IT all over the globe and not on the globe, International Space Station and that. And in many ways, it's very similar to other CIO jobs. And I think in other ways, it's not similar based on my experience in another federal agency and talking to my colleagues across the federal CIO council. But for NASA, I think from my perspective is it's very important to be focused on the people and the mission and getting to know the needs so that when you're trying to balance cybersecurity with usability of the tools or shrinking the set of tools that you have available in the agency, you can balance that from an experiential perspective as well as the voices at the table and really work closely with my team to try to make that happen. Because our cybersecurity posture really did have to improve. And in part that it's based on NASA's really rich history inventing what is necessary to get the job, whether it was the Apollo era putting people on moon or now our Boots the Moon campaign, we're going to try to put the first female on the moon. So very excited to be part of that. But cybersecurity threats back from the 50s and 60s were not as they are today. And so we have a lot of legacy IT, which I consider good IT, and there's some of the legacy IT that is not very good IT. And so we're trying to figure out how to slowly or at the right pace take out the legacy IT that is not good for the agency and put in the right stuff and also try to drive down the cost and increase the efficiency and productivity with it, which isn't different than other federal agencies. Just I have to be very careful because we have flying assets and we don't want anything to happen to those. In a climate where the focus is always on system modernization, what is it like managing legacy systems, especially on things like the Voyager spacecraft where you can't just change systems no, quickly? You, <laughs> no, you can't. We're not pulling that one back from space, giving another operating system and shipping it back out there with a big giant price tag. Right. Um, and we actually just don't do that. And I'm not sure you could physically do that anyway. Again, I got to know, I spent my first couple of years really getting to know the missions, kind of walking around really uneducated, but very curious about what was happening around the agency so that I could understand the mix of mission. People have a tendency to say, well, we have human space and we have science, and then we invent the technology we need for any of those pieces. But they're varied as you go down the stack of each area. And so understanding that then allowed me to figure out how do we go forward with some of our legacy IT and understanding what is truly legacy IT. So Voyager, as you mentioned, we want to keep that flying, even though the data comes back in little bits and dribs and drabs. And most of us wear watches that have greater capacity and computing power and that it still is giving us information about our our galaxy and the universe that we don't have other assets giving us. And so we make decisions to keep extending its life or any flying asset that is that far out in our universe here. So it's a tough balance, right? Because at some point they could be a threat 
to space from the perspective of an actual threat to national security. If something should happen, you've got debris management you have to keep in mind. These are all the decisions that the agency makes in terms of keeping a science project going and making that decision. So cybersecurity, it needs to be integrated into that, whether it's hackable and if it's hackable, what could be the damage associated with it? So those assessments we're, we're getting, we need to start making those assessments with cybersecurity. We're getting our legs underneath us on that one. So the safety line with our flying assets gets to be it. So I take a look at what's on the ground and how can we protect it in other ways, not by upgrading its operating system, not by patching it, because these are things that just don't exist for the operating systems and just make sure that we're doing the best we can for all of the people we share space with. Right, because it's not just the United States and large countries anymore, or the considered global powers. It is also small satellites that schools are launching. Uh, the constellation, how we live, has a lot more satellite interaction, XM radio, news, weather, all of these things that aren't necessarily run by NASA or countries, these constellations of satellites, there's more and more up there that affect and benefit our daily lives all across the globe. So again, that's another thing that has to be managed with respect to space assets and modernization. And so what we try to do is bake in as modern as you can in anything that's about to fly. But again, as soon as it gets off the ground from an IT perspective, a lot of that stuff can go obsolete very fast. And so we've got backup systems and we've got other ways that we can protect our assets and, and not be a danger to other satellites or a danger to the United States national security. So it's always a blend of stuff. It's a lot of creativity. And sometimes I just hope for mm -hmm. the best. It seems like there's a lot of working gears that you need to keep track of, really. We do, and sometimes they fall on the ground because as a human, I get distracted. But I've got such an amazing team, and we've really forged, my entire team has forged some really great productive relationships within our missions. Um, as an example, mission control for Space Station, the guy who helped set it all up and do that became really a great technical advisor to me. And I was grateful for that because I could call him with what would be maybe out in the public a dumb question. But I didn't come from space. I wasn't really a space geek, although I've become a space <laughs> geek a little bit, not like anybody in the agency, but enough to understand the thrill of what we do on a daily basis. So I would just call him and ask really basic questions about how things worked. Not so I would operate it, but just enough to get an understanding of the operating knowledge and gain a sense of trust with somebody in the mission because I now understand the way he works, not to do his job, but enough to say, okay, if we've got to do these cyber advancements, can you take that in your IT? And if you can't, then what are you doing already to, to give us the same benefit? And so those are just great conversations to have. So I'm very fortunate to have somebody that was a great teacher or still is a great teacher. NASA has a, a ton of different missions, of course, but with those missions, there's the plan to go to the moon again, Mars. Where does IT fit into all of that? Well, a lot of people would probably debate me on this, but I see a lot of hardware and software flying when we call it a satellite. So uh, what it means for IT in my swim lane, because the agency has 3,000 software developers not in the CIO organization, and they shouldn't be in a CIO organization. These are coders embedded in the mission, doing the hardware, software, mechanics, all of that stuff for a satellite, for rockets and stuff like that. So they should stay where they are. What I do is work with the mission control folks to make sure that good cybersecurity practices are there, that we're monitoring our development environments, but we cannot monitor our actual live places because you cannot disrupt 
uh, mission control so that we have a sense of what's going on or what could go on. Inside mission control, you have to look at insider threats very, very carefully, and so the teams do that. And then what we're trying to do is embed secure coding practices in the way NASA operates. We want to make sure that everything that should be locked for space safety issues are locked, and that's another cyber advantage is a locked door, um, and make sure that anybody operating inside those environments don't offer an opportunity for insider threat. We've uh, launched monitoring, something that hadn't existed at NASA across the IT platform, our entire ecosystem. So we didn't have that monitoring capability. And so when the Continuous Diagnostic and Mitigation Program came from DHS to NASA, I happened to have just started there when it happened. I said, we are going to embrace this. And we are 90% deployed across the agency, and that includes the missions as well, is if you don't monitor, you don't know what's on your network. If you don't know what's on your network, you are operating in the blind and you have no idea what people are trying to do, whether it's for nefarious activities or for very positive earth life science activities, space science or anything like that. And so now that we have that monitoring, all of us are learning to what our systems should look like, how they should operate, and then getting those to better, more improved architectures. That would be another thing that we would do to modernize that. And again, that has to come at the right cycle because we do mission freezes associated with that. So that's one of the ways or a couple of different ways that we've embedded cybersecurity in what we do. From a tools perspective, the folks that run mission ops, they know what they need and very supportive of doing that. We're now just starting up a supply chain risk management program. We're very much in our nascent stages, and that would be another place where we have partnership to make sure that the IT that comes in, the hardware and software, we know how it's behaving. We know where the data are going. We know who funded the development. We know where the coders were when they developed it so that we can better protect our assets because coding is usually it's pretty much a cottage business old way of making curtains. Uh, and so they spread it out across the globe in order to get the coding done on a timely fashion. So just a few things that we pay attention to and how we uh, embed cybersecurity in the way we do business. The amount of data NASA handles on a day-to-day -day basis, I can only imagine is astronomical. Um, and you noted previously that many challenges within NASA as a result have remained the same since it was first founded. Can you go into some of what those challenges are? So the challenge is moving data around the globe, right, is making sure that your stations that are taking the information or gathering the information from space can move it quickly or appropriately into the hands of scientists in this particular example. So that is one of the particular challenges, and the, they're finishing a series of upgrades to those, to those outposts around the globe. Um, and then secondly, we're taking a look at how we compute, store, and manage data on the back-end side. So they, science in particular has been a great partner with the CIO, and they have been evaluating cloud as an opportunity for them to get greater capacity or surge capacity depending upon what needs to be the focus for the data. And we're planning for it. So our future missions will probably be bringing down 45 petabytes of data per year. Wow. And that's a different structure than a few petabytes per year of data coming from space. And we are flying more missions than we used to. So while we might be able to manage 45 petabytes from one asset, if there's a series of assets bringing down that amount of data, now you understand that here on Terra Firma, it's a bit of a challenge. But I've got a great person working on our data center cloud strategy, Karen Petraska, and she is 
very much working with the science and planning the future of what that needs to look like so that the scientists around the globe have easy access to our data and they can make great discoveries for the benefit of humankind. You previously spent 25 years at the EPA in a few different roles, including Deputy Assistant Administrator and Deputy CIO. What brought you from there to NASA? So my first answer is usually I saw what they, we were doing to the planet. And so I needed to be able to get off this planet to find wine and chocolate very easily. <laughs> and NASA has the capability to do that. The other option, which is actually the real reason, <laughs> is, is that I would kind of stumbled into the IT world in my career. And I really grew to love that area. And so I said, wow, I had felt like from EPA's perspective from IT that I might have reached the end of challenges as I saw challenges. It's not that they were out of challenges. It's just the way I looked at them. And so I said, wow, I've only got a few years left in my federal career. Where can I go help somebody be successful? And so the NASA opportunity came up and I quickly called the CIO and somebody said, because I was suggested that I should apply for it. And I said, I better talk to the CIO there because he is not getting a technical person. I could not put a server in to save my life. <laughs> and so I called and I said, you know, it's, I've been encouraged to apply for the position. I want to understand the position. And I want to make sure you know I am not technical. I said, I have spent a lot of my career organizing people and getting them focused on the task at hand and achieving that as a team sport. That's what I do. Most days I think I do it well. Some days I don't do it well because I get frustrated, both with myself as well as humans. <laughs> IT would be a lot easier if I didn't have humans <laughs> on either end, those trying to use it and those trying to steal through it. And so the position came up and the CIO said, well, he's looking more for a partner and not necessarily a technical person. And so I went through the interview process and I was selected for the job. It was only a few weeks after I'd been on the job that they asked me to be the CIO. And and I just say it's probably just a sheer moment of naivety that I said yes. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I said yes. Me too. 90% <laughs> of the time. Because um, it's, it's a very complicated agency. And when I got to know the IT, we really had a long, we still have a long way to go to make some improvements. But some metrics kind of show that we've been on the right journey. We've gotten a score of managing risk from high risk in cybersecurity and all four categories associated with that. Identify, protect, uh, respond and recover, but there's a fifth one in there and I can never remember it. Sorry. I can't either. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and then the Fatara report card, we went from an F to a B plus to a recent one and anxious about the June card, but at least I'll take my F to B plus at this point. And being able to lead and work with such an amazing team is, has been very rewarding. Your journey from the EPA to NASA, it spans a significant amount of time in terms of the pace of technology growth. You began at the EPA in 1990. That was before smartphones, for example. How has this shift in technology informed your approaches to the IT systems you manage? What's always informed and how I even headed going this direction is I saw early in my career, because before I was with EPA, I was a contractor to EPA, and I, we were mailing five and a quarter floppies around the country to move data so we could report to Congress about how the billions of dollars that we were getting in the Superfund program were making a difference in communities. And so 
It was at that moment I saw where data and information and knowledge could turn into action or could tell the stories of actions and differences being made in those communities. And when I got into the arena of writing environmental policy, I made a point of going out to the field and just seeing what it meant to do a cleanup. And I got to tell you, it's just a field. It's <laughs> so like, oh, what are we doing here? Groundwater pump and treat. And you're looking around and you go, well, I see a bunny. <laughs> and they're like, okay, let me go show you stuff. And, and it's really not that obvious what's going on in the underground world. But what I understood is they needed data off of the monitors and they needed data off of the pump and treat systems. And that was getting more and more remote. And I said to myself that, boy, wouldn't it be great one day as if I were in the field and I was a remedial project manager, was standing there and I got my samples right there on a handheld. That's when PDAs first came out. A personal digital assistant, <laughs> right? Not the other high school term. And <laughs> so I said, that's where this is going, is that if I were in the field, I would have access to information instantaneously. And that's when it really started to dawn on me that we were in the age of information. And I would like to be part of it because I see the benefit of moving information and having the right information and quality information and the integrity of the information preserved to make really difficult public health and public service decisions and the whole public policy. And so that's when it was born. And I just kind of started to take jobs on the side or projects on the side. And next thing you know, they felt maybe one day I was qualified to be the deputy CIO VPA and served then in other roles. And so I'm either naive or um, I'm just compelled by serving the mission. And this is the way I do it. It's a bit inspiring considering um, you, you yourself proclaimed not to be a, a techie. And now you're leading NASA, NASA's information office. So it, it is inspiring. And as a female in that space, I know you have a lot of passion, I guess, in getting women involved in STEM. Yes. So where does NASA fit into that? Well, NASA's got such a great brand. It gets my foot in the door in a lot of places. And so I want to use it for good and tell people and show people that you can. So I have an economics degree and it's a Bachelor of Arts, and I only did four years. I don't sit still very well, although now I do. I just collapse at the end of every day. <laughs> oh, well, I got through that one. Maybe could have done better. Maybe this went really well. and that. But I do try to serve in that inspiration because I had women before me that were inspiring. I think it's really important to make sure that girls and women know that they can even when they believe they can't. And that fake it till you are it. It is absolutely holds true to me sometimes. And I'm always trying to observe and learn from people around me. And how do I bring that to be part of my game and be curious um, and listen and then try to emulate what I think is good. And when I see managers or executives behaving in ways that I don't like, I try to ground that in me to say, please don't ever do that to someone. And it's not always the case because I'm as human as the next person, but I do want to stand up and be an inspiration for girls and women. I left math and mathematics was easy for me. Science was easy for me, but I got tired of always being the only girl. I really did. And what was the fashion then, right? Imagine, so, okay, I got to take you way back here, <laughs> but imagine fashion for, for women in the 80s. And what the guys were wearing. And one, we had to wear these little 
bow ties, which have never, I've worn a couple of these tie blouses, but they're usually like dangling down here <laughs> and that they're not all tied up at the neck. Cause I'm like, oh, you're choking me. <laughs> and I couldn't see myself loving clothes and shoes like I do and being a mathematician or a scientist or my, an engineer. I, I tested really well in the engineering you know, that whole figure out what you're going to be. It was an engineer. I'm like, I'm not going to be an engineer. That's a pocket protector and pens and <laughs> dark, thick glasses. And there are no girls. There are no women. How am I going to talk? How am I going to say to somebody on the elbow going, what did that guy just say? And so I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't feel like I would have support going through that, but I was blind and I was maybe just really focused on myself as a teenager and that has helped me be successful as I realized I was pretty selfish. I was pretty bold too. Missed a few curfews and out the window a few times. And that'll serve you well <laughs> if, as long as you're willing to be grounded for a while. But part of what I think what I would sum it up is I had enough people that believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. And I had enough female models breaking ground for me because it really was groundbreaking to be in my generation. You didn't see, you couldn't see yourself and we don't see enough of ourselves in the higher echelons of our co public companies and that, and that's where Roots and Wings come in. And so I had wings through the inspiration I saw in other female leaders, Amelia Earhart, um, Susan B. Anthony, Sacagawea. I mean, these are all the people I studied and I said, okay, they did and what was around them. And then I have just fabulous roots. My parents, even though I got grounded a lot, I had such great family support about trying to tame my um, coloring outside the lines attitude. And and so I'm just fortunate to have, have had both good roots and, and good wings, which got me through it. Being someone who has gone from being a female, maybe feeling intimidated by the engineering space or being at NASA, did you ever think you would come to NASA to lead these technical systems based on what you were doing before? No. In fact, when I was asked to apply for the job, I was looking for something else. But that's not the job I wanted <laughs> because I was intimidated about it. And I was like, what am I going to do, right? I was not the top of my class, right? And these are, these are really smart people. Half the people have patents. And I'm like, oh, is that a blue patent or a black patent leather? Right. I mean, it's just it's a different language than I was ever exposed to. But I also went to try and make somebody successful. So, and it was the offer that I had. And I said, well, it could be fun, even though I didn't feel qualified for the job or that I wouldn't really have much to offer. I knew that I was going to be in a learning environment. And the point was I was looking for additional challenges to learn how to manage and lead IT so much better than I felt that I was equipped for. And so it was a little bit of a leap of faith on myself and an acceptance of that leap of faith and a belief by others that I could do it. So it is really kind of funny to look at that because at the time there were other jobs open and I felt far more qualified for those CIO, uh, not, not CIO, but deputy CIO positions because they were more like what I had grown up through EPA with. A lot of scientific stuff, but NASA is highly engineered. I don't know how a rocket operated. 
right? I hadn't really even cared much about rockets, even though my dad works for NASA. So I am second generation NASA. And now I'm looking at my nieces and my son going, oh, maybe you guys could be the third generation <laughs> of NASA because it is, it is a really neat place to work because it, what happens in a day-to-day basis and on our TV monitors is pretty cool for the benefit of humankind. And you know, sometimes I just don't be- just kind of pinch myself that I'm kind of there and filling the role and doing the best I can. But sometimes I skin my knees and I make mistakes. And fortunately, in a CIO job, when you make mistakes, it's pretty public. So you just have to learn how to work through and recover, which I think is just really good lesson in life. You're going to make mistakes. You should make mistakes. Learn from those mistakes. Throw your shoulders back. Put on a great pair of shoes, an awesome dress. (laughs) Walk out the door and go, I got to work through this. I got to learn from it. And I got to make today great. Comparing the EPA and NASA, what are some of the the differences in their challenges IT-wise? Um, they actually are very different. So at EPA, we had one data center, and we from the beginning, EPA had been managing where applications were hosted and, and managing it, and that manages data really well. And that was a, a great thing to have. Um, and you had folks that wanted to they believed in the planet and making the planet better. So there was much more of a partnership with IT and those that knew IT well. So I go over to NASA and there everybody pretty much knows how to program in who knows what language. And they know how to set up a server because we had servers under desks. So we didn't have a singular centralized place to start knowing where our data was. And one of the things I walked in on was the agency shrinking that footprint and organizing its data centers better and managing its data better, which is really good to do because discoveries in science don't just come from the data set you think you need. They come from asking questions and looking for other data sets that might answer that question. So that was one difference was just the way we set up data centers between the two agencies. And then the second part was the partnership, although everybody likes to kick the IT dog, it's always the CIO's fault. (laughs) We're over that. I had a teenage son. He's 27. He'll be 27 this weekend. So I've gone through the teen years where eh, I might not have been the smartest person in the house. Um, He was a great teen. There were occasions. And so when you look at those differences, that's just a very different job is already viewed as a partner and wanting to say, go make it happen for me because I need to do this environmental thing. Why do I need you? I can do this. And, And so those are just two very different paradigms. The approach I took was really about how do I bring people together to understand the benefit. And I know you're smarter than I am, but this is not the way we need to operate in the future. And I had a lot of great backing through our management team and our executives because they saw that it needed to happen. And so that was already beginning to happen before I got to NASA. And so I stepped in at a time where I got to lead the overall plan instead of having to capture the hearts and mind to believe that it needed to happen. So those are just two examples of, of differences. And, and frankly, just the nature of NASA's IT footprint is hugely different than EPA's. We, are, we really are all over the globe and off the globe. We decommissioned some IT by jamming it into a planet. Somebody asked me why. I said, because we can, <laughs> right? We were grateful for uh, Cassini and 
great data, great things discovered, and what a great end. And farewell to Oppie as well on Mars. So there, there's um, some collaborations going on with uh, getting commercial flights up to space. Mm-hmm. What is that? Are you interested in that personally? No. No, I love being here, but I love watching the partnerships because what you see or what people have been able to watch with commercial crew is the possibility that so many other people are talented and, and other countries have amazing talent. And when we bring them together, look what we get to solve and get to discover with science. So some examples, waste to tools. Right. When we go to the moon and Mars right now in our early arrival, no Amazon is going to show up at the doorstep when you need your thing. I know Bezos is working on all of this. Right. But right now you have to go self-sufficiently and you have to expect the unexpected. And so what are you going to do? So we had a 3D competition for making what you might need living somewhere on another planet with a 3D printer. So trash to a tool, right? What does my habitat look like? Well, I can look around Mars and I have to know what my resources are on the planet. And then I probably have to add a few things. Well, what it is can I bring and reduce and reuse and recycle? All of that comes true when we're going to go be on it sustainably at the moon and then eventually at Mars. And so that's just a different level of curiosity. And I love watching it. And I hope some of that gets to come to my house. <laughs> like, you know, like, I feel badly about my trash can. I try to reduce as much as I can. But like one day, could I turn those into a cool pair of shoes? <laughs> awesome. I got my own pair of shoes from a drinking water bottle. I know you can. I'm not going to do an advertisement. I'm actually wearing those. <laughs> yes. I know who they are. And that's great. But what if I did them? Right. Or what if my neighbors and I pitched in and made a great thing or a snow shovel when we couldn't get a snow shovel during a snowstorm? Well, let me just run in my 3D printer and I'll be out in a, a little while and I'll be able to shovel. Right. So it just really changes up the imagination. The landscape that is at stake, which is not earthly, really has an impact on how you think about data and your systems. It's kind of hard to grasp, really being someone who's not even in that space. Yeah. What we think about data is got to get data, the highest integrity from where it is, where it's being captured. There's now more capability to compute and store and manage and analyze in place. But sometimes you want to bring it into maybe a bigger environment, larger computing power environment. So then you're transporting it and you got to protect it there. Got to protect it when you're doing that. It's called at the edge computing at the edge, which we need to do in first response. You're not sending, moving data. You are right there getting real-time information to save lives um, or save buildings or save, you know, economies. You look at floods, those hurt economies of those areas that have been hit. And so that's what you're trying to do is where do you need to use the data? How do you need to compute it? How much power do you need? How can you convert water pressure into power? Right. You, know, you just imagine these things because that's the where we're going. Um, and so we just just try to keep providing those tools. Some of the scientists and the engineers will bring those tools in themselves as long as they have authorities to operate and they've checked all the bad, the dark side of I.T., 
you know, I'm okay with that in some instances. We, we've got to be a little less and plant our many fields of flowers at NASA, but we're making strides because we can't wreck the mission. We can't disrupt the pace of missions as we do it. So that's just one of the examples of way we have to think and do. And with 5G coming and everything's mobile now, well, that's a rethinking of our entire infrastructure and it takes time and it takes money. Another aspect of all the data in tech is security, as you already touched on a little bit. NASA was prominently working through security concerns during the shutdown, for example. And then you have the massive amounts of data that are passing through your systems constantly. Do you feel like NASA's security challenges are unique in the federal government compared to other agencies? We have a lot of similarities to our data challenges. So NOAA, NOAA brings back data from to ask questions or form partnerships with CIOs and that just to learn from them and exchange. Most of that's fairly private because you know, it's like, okay, what's going on here and there? So we have places where we can go learn and where we can exchange because sometimes we can offer some insights into how we're doing stuff. So it's really about thinking through who is similar to you, and we do feel ourselves as being quite unique at NASA, <laughs> but you can find those commonalities associated with it and then learn from each other. Military has to protect their data uh, in ways that we don't necessarily have to, but we do have concerns because we're federal government that we have to protect national security. So we can't be so laissez-faire about it as well. And so how do you find that balance between security and integrity of the data that we're bringing in that we're using to inform decisions with usability of the tools? Because the Space Act says protect national security and be open. And they say that in the same act. And so we're always working between that balance. Now, some would say, and I have done this, I have tipped far more towards the cybersecurity side because we were a threat to national security and what we saw in our network was a little bit embarrassing. And we're working very hard to get that network security improved. And then I think I can go back to be a little bit more tilted towards, okay, how are we going to free up that data? I've got great folks that work with the science programs and free up that data on a regular basis, but 80 to 90% of my time is spent on cybersecurity um, and how to make, I, my hope is, is when I leave NASA, is that NASA will be a safety and cybersecurity culture and that that is our culture and the way we go about doing what we do that is just embedded in our thoughts and our actions. Because if we don't, cybersecurity will be a safety incident. And I, I don't want that to happen on my watch. Me neither. <laughs> Thank you. I'm counting Appreciate on you. It. <laughs> Back to maybe the gender gap a little bit. What is the importance of NASA tackling the gender gap as far as getting women involved, more involved in NASA and its, its mission? So let's begin with the moon and walk it backwards. Okay, And that is is the commitment that the first female will be on the moon in 2024 in this campaign. And that's been stated publicly. And I'm really excited to see that because for all of the generations of girls and women and older ones too, what they see is possibility. It's the same symbolism to me as in discussions is seeing when our presidents begin to look like the rest of the United States. With Obama being elected as a president, that hits communities in ways that you don't even know because you might not be part of that community. But giving iconic 
individuals to be out there and show you can, that changes the way a lot of people think. And when people think they can, that means more people, no one's getting left behind because they think it's possible. Charlie Bolden, as our NASA administrator, showed a boatload of people militarily. He has a fabulous career in the military. Then he was an astronaut. And then he was the head of NASA. Talk about iconic and showing people what's possible. The people of South Carolina, the, the military folks that military may be their only opportunity for them to get higher education or get exposed to different ways of thinking. He, he just shows it in everything he does. But when you see your gender or you see yourself in people that are ahead of you doing these things, it really does change your mindset. And in that, you've got to have very diverse community that's advising you and telling you how to supporting you when you need the support or telling you how to get better or how to better prepare for your next adventure. What is your next adventure? <laughs> oh, um, I usually <laughs> say every day once I've chosen my shoes to wear, that's the end of the control of my day. So what is next for me? So um, I, I am at the sunset of my federal career without a date because I don't want to worry anybody. My husband is retiring this year, so it certainly is bringing up that in my mind and that. But I've got a number of years left in me to keep working. And whether it's at NASA, which is this a great adventure, or it's a private sector, what I want to do is, and I want to continue to do, is strive to do my best, recognize that I'm human, that I will make mistakes, and that I hope that everybody around me will be so supportive that they'll recognize that I will learn from the mistakes. I mean, they just paid for my teaching when <laughs> I made the mistake, so let's get something out of it. Uh, continue to work on STEM for girls. So I probably I'm going to need a little more time to make that happen and um, be able to enlighten the world or the United States about the cybersecurity threats are real. Because we can't see these threats, we can only feel them when our identity is stolen, then I'd like to be an advocate for changing the way society looks at software and hardware we can be cyber-oriented and still have a lot of the freedoms that we have in social media and the conveniences that we have with our software. When we tell Alexa, turn on the lights or tell me the weather or sing me a song or tell me a joke <laughs> um, or give me the news, and that we can have all of this, but we're going to have to think differently when we lay out these products and make sure that they are secure because the threats are real. And so I think if I should have a what's next outside of NASA, it'd be focusing on continuing to inspire women to be in surroundings that allows me to continue to thrive and accepts me for being human. Um, focus on also raising up other leaders and bringing that cyber to everyday life. Well, it seems like NASA is in good hands. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a great conversation and very inspiring, and I'm, I'm very glad to have been able to talk to you today. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was absolute delight, as nervous as I was <laughs> on this one, and, and I just appreciate the opportunity to share NASA's journey and, and celebrate putting those first female boots on the moon. 
GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. Edited by Chris Edwards. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.